Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Cool. Good afternoon. Um, I've lost track of the date. It's the 19th of December. We're six days away from Christmas. It shouldn't be that hard to keep up. It's We're a countdown. T minus, T minus <laughs> six days. The <laughs> Santa tracker mode activated. If, yeah, but is Santa tracker on or is it off on Twitter? That's the big question because I've seen... I I've seen reports leaning both ways. I, I I guess it depends if Elon Musk considers it doxing Santa to have the Santa track to have the Santa tracker on. I'm not really sure. Who would want to assassinate Santa? Like it's self-defeating. You don't get your gift. So I'm sure. I, anyway. I, I certainly do not want to. I, I'm team Santa 100 percent. I'm count. I'm counting on the jolly man coming to my house and filling my tree with lots of gifts so yeah so so anyway um nonsensical start to the show which we weren't even planning on doing we thought we had put the last show of the year in the can last week or thereabouts and turns out the nlrb did a, a year-end uh, dump of cases uh, and uh, so this is mike vandervoort and john hyman doing what what i guess officially will now be the last uh, drive through of the year unless they announce like i don't know the nlrb went out of business on on new year's eve or something but anyway mm. anyway there, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's the gift we're all waiting for. Yeah, that, that's that they need more funding, but I don't think they're going to go out of business, or they say they need more funding. So, so anyway, seriously, we're gonna we're gonna do a, another show because there actually were a number of cases. There, they range from uh, potentially super significant down to kind of like they set a law stands that has already stood for sixty years. So, I guess we'll go in in order of magnitude, John. And the first one is this decision that. That's called Thrive, T-H-R-Y-V, I believe is the spelling of the company uh, name. You have that correct. Yeah. So you want to tell us what the Thrive decision is all about? The Thrive decision um, makes uh, uh, consequential economic damages available under the NLRB's make whole remedy. It is so historically um, when an employee is terminated, discriminated against, what have you, files an unfair labor practice charge, the and uh, the board rules in the employee's favor, the traditional remedy that you think of are things like reinstatement and back pay to make the employee to make the employee whole. Um, that's what the NLRB has historically done. And in the Thrive case, the NLRB said, we do not believe that reinstatement and back pay is enough to uh, make an employee whole under the National Labor Relations Act. And therefore, we are going to also order in appropriate cases, direct or foreseeable pecuniary harms suffered by the affected employee in order to make that employee whole. Um, it is in my view, a significant expansion of the NLRB's remedies under the act. Um, the NLRB gives examples of what direct or foreseeable pecuniary harm, uh, what it might look like. They give examples of 
interest in late fee on credit cards, uh, penalties or interest on early withdrawals from retirement accounts, um, uh, foreclosure expenses if one loses one's home, uh, or uh, if one able, if someone's un- unable to make a, a car payment and their car gets repossessed, um, increased child care costs, or increased child care costs. Um, it is a a range of remedies that the NLRB is now poised to impose in appropriate cases above and beyond uh, back wages, back pay, um, and uh, and lost benefits for a time a period uh, in which an employee was uh, unemployed as a result of a, as a result of an employer's unfair labor practice. So uh, potentially um, game changing uh, uh, in uh, how board cases are litigated i think by uh by uh unions and unions and by employees so so a question um i, I well maybe a maybe a statement with a with a question attached to it which is this is not going to apply to every ulp i guess that's the statement these no, these these charges right. will not apply to the vast majority of charges that get brought it's, before it's go, the board. it's going to it's going to rely it's it's going to apply in cases in which the board imposes its 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 make whole remedy under section 10c of the act right. which is typically someone who claims a, a ulp based on that, that they lost their job because of union Correct. organizing activity and this is an alleged retaliation and the board finds that there was cause right Correct yeah so so this isn't something that you have to worry about in every every time you get a ulp but it um if you've ever had any kind of a make whole remedy uh ordered under an arbitration award during a, a union grievance procedure where an arbitrator says that you have to make an employee whole and, and if there they can get i mean it's not just cut them a paycheck for the lost hours there's some other things that go behind that right there's you gotta you may have to make up pension investments or payments you may have to make up lost earnings on um like four 401k investments, it gets fairly complicated and the arbitrators aren't really that helpful in giving you the full, um, the full, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. They, they don't really give you the, they leave it up to the employer to calculate it. Basically. Yeah. I, I, I guess the difference is, you know, arbitral law is its own separate yeah, animal yeah. and arbitrators have, you know, wide discretion on to, to kind of craft a remedy as they see fit under, you know, under a collective bargaining agreement. Here we have a, a federal statute that says that, and I'm going to quote it, that where the board concludes that a party is engaged in an unfair labor practice, it, quote, shall issue and cause to be served on such person in order requiring such person to cease and desist from such unfair labor practice. Okay, don't do it. Don't do it anymore and don't do it again. And, and this is the key language, to take such affirmative action, including reinstatement of employees with or without back pay, as will effectuate the policies of the act. And I, I wonder if this, if these, um, uh, if these additional remedies for, uh, you know, additional pecuniary remedies fall within the definition of, um, uh, you know, back pay, which is really what we're talking yeah. about here, as will effectuate the policies of the act. And so the, the the board went through, you know, pages of explanation as to what the policies of the uh, policies of the National Labor Relations Act are to try to shoehorn these these remedies in. Um, but this this the Thrive case is will will not, I'm certain, be the last we're going to hear on this issue. The federal circuit courts 
um, will, uh, I would assume, I would assume the employer will appeal and the circuit court will have its say. And this could be the type of case um, that goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which will have its say as well. And so this is not going to be the last we're going to hear on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I heard another labor attorney on a call I was on the other day who, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to get this 100% right, but he, he basically said that these kind of damages that they're talking about now, that they went to, to almost literally almost like gyrations to stay away from the notion that they had anything to do with tort law. Yeah, and they made, yeah, and they made that, the, the, the dissent made a huge uh, made a huge point that this is you are if you're not in the realm of tort damages, right? Pain and suffering, uh, emotional distress, consequential damages, and whatever, um, you're you're awfully close. And that raises, um, you know, the NLRB is not a jury trial, but an awarding that type of relief would raise Seventh Amendment, I think, considerations as to whether a jury trial would be necessary to award mm -hmm. those kind of damages. And so, um, yeah, so the NLRB. Uh, in the majority opinion, went through, um, you know, bent over backwards to try and ex explain why this wasn't like tort damages. But that's sure. I mean, it's not it's not emotional distress. It's not pain and suffering, but it sure starts to look a lot more like tort damages to me than what we traditionally think of in these kind of cases. So, yeah. So and I don't know if you've put any thought to this or not. I And I, I don't have any clue. Um, would you estimate that this makes the likelihood of voluntary settlements more likely or the the growth of litigation over the over the scope of the of the of the potential damages I, I guess it depends on how bad you get hit maybe huh i guess i mean i guess it's going to give the board a lot greater latitude to craft remedies in these kind of cases which could i mean one of the criticisms that we always hear from unions and employing union and employee side advocates under the under the act is that there's not a lot at stake for employers. So there's not employers don't have a lot of skin in the game that deters them from retaliating or threatening or whatever, because they're looking at, you know, so we'll, we have to bring someone back to work and we'll find another reason to fire them. Um, we may have to pay them some back pay. And that's, that's, that's our risk here. Uh, this, I think increases the risk because it gives the board a lot more latitude to try and craft a remedy. I think it also is going to create a lot of additional issues to be litigated because now, I mean, if, if I'm representing the employer and the employee is saying, well, I want my credit card interest paid, or I want my, my house was foreclosed. Um, I'm, I'm going to want to start digging as to, you know, what your, what's your, what, what's your, what's your financial management look like where a couple months of being unemployed cause your, you know, caused you not, yeah. to, not to be able to pay your mortgage and to, so I think it increases the scope of litigation at the NLR in front of the NLRB. I think it um, also gives the board a lot more latitude of what damages to award in these kind of cases, which does, I think, increase increase the risk for employers. So maybe that maybe that does kind of further incentivize settlement because there's not a lot of incentive to settle when you're all your when when as an employer you're looking at potentially you know, some back pay and bringing, and bringing a guy or two back to work. Yeah. You kind of know, you kind of know the number there. You can yeah. calculate yep. it yourself almost. Yeah. Okay. So I think, I think that covers the the thrive case. So th that's the big one that came out there. There could still be potentially a couple more cases coming out over the, this week and next. Um, it, it, the the next one that I guess I was going to go to, and I'm, I was trying to determine in my own brain here, my own mind, which one <laughs> which I thought was, had which more was the most significant. Yeah. So, so the next one I think is, um, 
um, is it American Steel? This is the that restores specialty yeah, that, healthcare. The, the micro, yeah, it's the micro, the micro unit case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that is that is so. Especially healthcare is a, is a decision that the, I forget when it was brought out, but it was it was the decision was released a few years ago and then reversed under the Trump board several years back, and now it's kind of been reinstated by the board. So we're, this is a pretty good example of how the NLRB flip-flops or whipsaws itself, depending on who's in charge of the board. But essentially, the, the issue for, for practitioners and companies is that specialty healthcare slash American Steel reopens up the possibility of what are known as micro units. Micro units are a subset. So in, in my industry, uh, retail, that would be like the deli in a rest in a grocery store organizes its own union, you know, and they become the uh, independent deli workers of America or something. And then you have another unit of, uh, of uh, bakers and they organize it inside a store. And then some of the other associates are not organized or in a, uh, and we've seen some cases that are more specific, like uh, like maintenance units inside a, an aircraft plant at Boeing was I think where the board turned it last time. So this is not as uh, anywhere near as momentous, although depending on your company and what it looks like and, and um, you know, how your, how your organizations are designed, I guess, I guess the fear from a management perspective is that a micro unit gets a foot in the door and then the union uses that to leverage organizing within and then a larger. Then it, spi- then, it, then it spider webs out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, there's some, so you want to, you want to, you want to talk about the legal uh, sort of the legal at principles or whatever micro units. I don't know how much there is to say, but. I mean, there's, there's not much. I mean, it re- it, what, what it really does is shift the burden here. So um, under, under the prior, uh, you know, under the prior test, um, so the union proposes the unit, the employer would say, no, we think we want, uh, and we, you know, we think these employees belong in the unit too. And as long as the, the unit as proposed by the employer was readily identifiable as a group and shared a community of interest, then, uh, the board would allow that to proceed as, as an appropriate union, appropriate unit bargaining unit for purposes of, of the, of the election. Now the burden it has been increased to show not just a community of interest, but an overwhelming community of interest in order to allow for an expansion of, of a proposed bargaining unit um, or for a bargaining unit to exist at all. Uh, overwhelming community of interest between the between the individuals in that proposed unit. And so, right. So what so that what that will allow for then is instead of to use your example, the the one unit inside the grocery store that all has you know that is identified as a group of grocery store workers and shares the community of interest of we all work for this grocery store now there has to be an overwhelming community of interest which is going to um, allow for you know without that showing uh, you're going to have several smaller or micro units as opposed to one larger unit which is where again to use your example you get the the meat counter workers and the deli counter workers and the bakers um, and the packers and the cashiers all as separate units uh, because while they may have a community of interest in the grocery store, they may not share that overwhelming community of interest to allow them all to be lumped into one unit. The uh, the, the good <clears throat> news from a management perspective here is, is that when specialty Healthcare was in effect. A lot of uh, a lot of employee relations and labor relations professionals freaked out a little bit because they thought it was going to boost boost organizing intensively. But the 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 actual impact was minimal. 
um, because these kind of units, you know, a, a deli of 20 people inside a grocery store, you know, whatever, you know, pick any, pick any grocer in the United States, representing 20 people inside that store is not really very profitable for the union. Um, any, you know, and so they're, they're, um, unless they can get into a situation like you see with Starbucks, where there's tons of these small units, but it's an entire store under the roof, it, it really doesn't make sense. And even with Starbucks, it's questionable about how valuable it is to the union from dues perspective. So the risk of this is probably not high, but it, it elevates it a bit. It makes you a little bit more vulnerable and it's it's something you have to keep an eye on and it certainly elevates your litigation uh, costs as you're arguing over units prior to an election or after an election and smaller elections are typically easier for unions to win as this is a bigger election so you know and and right and so the risk is right you, you get the one the one micro unit of you know six bakers um you know votes the union in and then now Right. They're bargaining for higher wages and the, the deli workers and the meat workers are looking at that and they're like, where's ours? And now they go to Oregon. Right. So there you, you do risk that spider webbing effect. But I absolutely hear what you're saying, that the impact of this the last time we went down this we went down this route uh, seemed to be pretty minimal. So hopefully it hopefully uh, hopefully that's the kind of I guess the, the the similar path we walked this time. But although the the, the organizing climate is different, way different. I was just going to say too. the yeah the the the, the organizing environment is um, it has re re resurged and I just heard some data on this. I forget the exact numbers, but I'll, I'll quote. So we're not going to quite hit twenty two election twenty two hundred election petitions filed for for twenty twenty two. It was it's verging out on almost up to 2200 for the year it's 2100 and change um but 2200 is probably the most that we've seen in the last four or five years and of course a couple of those years were COVID affected so they don't they're they don't really count but organizing is definitely up but starbucks is the big big 800 pound gorilla that drove that if we didn't if we didn't have starbucks it would have been an average year but organizing is back and organizing has taken different shapes and forms as we've discussed Many times on other shows, you know, in the retail industry, the service sector, craft brewing, etc., the 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 industries aren't the old 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 line union industries. So you're you know if if you're in a if you're in the service economy, you're higher at risk. And so these this could be hotel maids, etc. So anyway, there's risk here, but don't go over. I, I guess don't go overboard on it, but do do be aware that it's out there and what's going on. And then the other one to me is it, it the uh, the bear. It looks like Bexar, but I, because I, I worked with somebody in San Antonio, I know it's Bear County down there, San Antonio Orchestra. They, they, uh, I guess, reinstated a, a, another case going back to New York, New York for access to property by contractors. Yeah, that the that the the an employer has to give right access to the employees of contractors for purposes of, um, uh, I guess you know not. Long and short of it is, if, if employees of contractors who already have access to the property want to engage in protected concerted activity on the work site, um, you have to, you, it, unless you can show significant interference with how the property is being used, you have to allow it to happen. Yeah, and th th this is really kind of a nothing burger for most most uh, most companies, I think, unless you employ a large number of contractors. And like the in San Antonio, it was the San Antonio Philharmonic Orchestra or some some something similar to that. And they had a lot of musicians who were contractors that played in the orchestra, and they were they were leafleting or hand building in the lobby of the concert auditorium, and they kicked them out. And the the, the board said that was improper, and so they had to allow those people to gather because. Even though they weren't employees, they were contractors. They still worked 
in that building and should have been treated with the same sort of protected concerted activity status as a, a regular uh, W-2 employee would have received, more or less. I guess that's kind of the impact of it. So Correct. Yeah. So, and it, this has been around, New York, New York's been around for a long time. We're just going back to that standard. So unless you deal with contractors a lot, this isn't something you probably need to spend a lot of time boning up on, but it, it doesn't hurt to be aware of it. Again, it, it's another one of the moves of the board making the swing back to more of the Obama environment. And then the last one is uh, is the, the, I guess, sustaining of Johnny's poultry, which is like 58 years old. This board loves revisiting ancient cases, but uh, <laughs> I've in my whole career I've used Johnny's poultry once. Uh, so I, I and and I forget is this what is the name of this case? I forget. I don't remember what it this is. Was. The name of the case is dun, 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 Sunbelt. Sunbelt. Sunbelt Rentals. Yes. So Sunbelt Rentals affirms Johnny's poultry. And can you explain what Johnny's poultry is? It's like labor relations Miranda. Act. Yeah, it's basically if you're interviewing employees um, about um, an unfair labor practice or something else, uh, you know, or, uh, or a potential unfair labor practice, you have to basically, you have to give them labor law Miranda rights. You got to communicate why you're questioning the employee, assure that assure the employee that no reprisals will take place and then obtain uh, and then confirm that, that they're participating voluntarily. Um, I, I just did a workplace investigation this morning um, on a harassment issue. I always explain the purpose of the questioning and I always assure the employee that I'm interviewing that they're not going to be retaliated against. I mean, that's, that's just kind of workplace investigation 101. So um, if you're not doing that as a matter of course, um, you should be anyway. Now, when I'm, when I'm interviewing an employee, um, it's, I mean, it's not really voluntary, right? I mean, they can certainly refuse to participate, um, but more often than not, it's made pretty clear that, that, um, you know, I, I really, we really, you know, they've been identified as a witness and we really need to have, we, we really need to hear what they want to say and they don't, they don't have to participate, but I don't, it's very rare that I've had an employee, um, in an investigation, you know, just not want to participate, um, you know, at all. We can usually, we, we can usually get their participation one way or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this, you know, and this, and this Sunbelt was Sunbelt Rentals. They um, affirmed Johnny's poultry and said, in in most cases, we're going to look at the totality of the circumstances and to, to determine whether or not you have to give employees um this, these Miranda, for lack of a better description, these Miranda rights before, uh, before before questioning them. So, it's um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's interesting that they're that they're going back to 1964 uh nearly 60 years to reaffirm a decision that really just is something that most employers are doing as a matter of practice anyway yeah i, I think that uh like i said I, I we used these once in one uh one campaign where we had a uop filed and i i think the the one thing you may not have touched on and i don't know if it's specifically part of the instructions that you have to do or if it's just good legal strategy um, I think one of the things they're concerned about under the Johnny's poultry rules, if you will, or the Johnny's poultry theory is not only do you have to kind of give the Miranda rights, but it, it has to be conducted in, in a non-coercive right. manner, right? Right. So, so like in, in our case at the company I was at, we used an outside attorney where 
because of the sensitivity of this stuff, you know, so they were able to come in and say the companies asked us to come in, which is basically what you're probably doing in your the investigations you're doing on behalf of your client today. It's kind of, I, I think it's good. I guess I'm trying to call out, a, I believe it's a good strategy to use a, a labor attorney as opposed to an internal person in a Johnny's poultry case, if you ever deal with one, because it kind of helps add another layer of credibility and neutrality to the, um, even though the, I know you're the advocate, but it's, you're not the well, company I, yeah. rep. Right, right, the coercive part. You're not signing the paycheck. I, I would say though, for companies uh, out there, uh, when you're picking your outside counsel to do your investigation, um, don't pick the counsel that you want litigating the claim for you because mm -hmm. the investigation, um, you're likely going to want to waive attorney-client privilege to get the investigation in as is part of your evidence is to show the reasonableness of why you did what you did justify whatever decision you made. And in all likelihood, the attorney investigator uh, is going to be a witness for you. And so they can't be a witness and an advocate at the same time. So you just got to be careful in how you're selecting um, who's going to do the investigation. So you're not uh, uh, inadvertently waiving your ability to use that person as your trial counsel down the road. Cool. So, so those, I believe are all the, those are the four cases, right? Yeah, it's been uh, uh, busy. Um, and I think what caught my eye when I suggested we hop on and, and pump out this podcast today was that these all came kind of rapid succession in the span of like two or three days. The NLRB put out these four, uh, you know, these four decisions, one on top of the other um, of uh, admittedly of varying significance, but I think it was just newsworthy the, with the pace at which these decisions yeah. came out. So it seemed like it was worth uh, uh, hopping on and, and, and having a chat about it. And, and not unusual because uh, John Ring, who's the former, was a former chair of the board under Trump and has been a member under the, under the Biden administration, um, his term ended a couple of days ago. And so it's not unusual at the end of a member's term to see a bunch of these types of decisions come flying out of the board. It's just a little unusual at year end, um, but because they want to get the sense in and kind of set the stage. So John, I guess will be going back. Uh, John was a good board chair, in my opinion. I met him a couple of times, heard him speak. He's an excellent hmm. speaker. And um, if and if yeah, I believe he's going back to Morgan Lewis, which I think is also home to Harry, uh, Harry Johnson and Phil Miscamara, a couple other board members. So Morgan Lewis seems to grow and breed and grow a lot of board members here over the last decade or so. So uh, all Republicans, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> which is which isn't a bad thing per se. Um, hey, I had a, I had another topic come to come to mind. Um, completely unprepared you for it. Um, so if you don't want to do it, let me know. We could do another show about it. But I had an interesting conversation with somebody the other day, and I just wanted to see if you might want to add a few thoughts. We, it, th this guy was talking to me about um, they had they had had a longstanding relationship with a labor attorney. And that labor attorney hit retirement age. He decided to, you know, take to bail out. And so they were in the process of trying to select um, a new labor attorney to basically do, handle their legal work. And it, and, and there wasn't apparently like a, 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 you know, a handoff. You know, there was no heir apparent at the firm that they were they were used to dealing with. And there was law also firms, law firm succession. Man, you got to do it. You got yeah, to you got to plan this stuff out. And then um, and then there was also. Um, uh, I guess I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't, this isn't the right term, but it's the only word I can think of peculiarities to the client, right? They had like, they had some, they had some relationship uh, uh, comfort with the, the particular attorney because he knew their quirks and nuances, right? And apparently they're, there's, there's, they're more than average for a client. So if you're, if you're, if you were, 
thinking about this, John, from your client's perspective, and somebody asked you this, what, what kind of advice would you pass about, you know, but, I mean, uh, client succession is a great one, but what else, what, what do people look for in labor attorneys these days? And how do you, how do you approach that real quick? If you, yeah, if you want to talk about it? No, I, I, I think, A, I think you need to look, we're all, everybody who practices in my, you know, in, in my world identifies as a labor and employment attorney. We say, we're well, I'm a management side labor and employment attorney, but the universe of attorneys that labor law is labor arbitrations and law under the national labor relations act right collective collective bargaining union law that's labor law employment law is everything else employment law is discrimination wage and hour um osha um you know wrongful termination handbooks investigations everything, everything all this else. stuff yeah if it's it's labor law is um union relations union management relations employment law is everything else dealing with employees and um, not everybody who says they're a labor and employment attorney is a, is a labor attorney. Not everybody has experience dealing with unions. Um, I'm, I'm blessed that, um, you know, the very first job I had out of law school, um, uh, was at a boutique, a, you know, a management side boutique firm that was, uh, one of the biggest labor boutiques, um, in the country and exposed me to a ton that sparked a career long interest in, you know, in labor relations law. Mm -hmm. um, you gotta, you gotta find an, you, you gotta find an attorney who understands the difference between employment law and labor law. And I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but not really. Um, it helps. I mean, it, you know, you are, your attorney is going to be, you know, sitting in arbitrations with labor union representatives, they're going to be sitting across the bargaining table. Uh, it helps to have attorneys on your side that have good relationships. These are, um, we think of labor management relations as being acrimonious. They don't, because that's what grabs the headlines, but they don't have to be, and they shouldn't be um, for it to work well. It helps to have someone that has a good relationship with the people they're going to be, you know, bargaining with and, and adjusting grievances with and sitting in arbitration hearings with, um, you, uh, you know, so I think those are the two things that I would look for is someone that a no, knows and understands the area of the law, because not all labor and employment lawyers do, despite calling themselves labor lawyers, and then find someone that has a good relationship with the with the labor unions, uh, because that's going to make your job, your job as the employer in all of your relations with the union just that much. It's a difficult relationship to begin with, and you don't need to make it more difficult than it has to be. Uh, just a couple other kind of uh, add-on questions. Um, one is, what about like uh, industry sector? Like, like you, you know, you talk about your craft beer practice. You know, yeah, like, I think yes. Uh, and then um, also um, national versus state kind of issues. I guess how much does that matter? Like. You um, know, size of client, size of firm. That sort yeah, of thing. I mean, se sector. I mean, sector matters. Um, I mean, to a degree, if you are in, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, um, if you're dealing, you know, if your union, your employees' union is the UFCW, and you know, it it would cert. I don't think it's required, but it would certainly help to have you know your attorney understand the industry, have a relationship with the locals um, in that particular union. It certainly can't hurt. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of national versus local or regional, um, 
I'm not sure that makes as much of a difference um, anymore. We can certainly, um, unlike, um, you know, our, our license because the, the NLR, the NLRB is national, you know, it's a federal agency is national in scope. I mean, our license kind of transfers state to state here. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I can, I can practice labor law anywhere. Um, again, the, the wider you, you know, if you are a national employer, um, your, um, you, it may behoove you to find someone who has bargaining units all over the country. It may behoove you to find someone. And I keep coming back on to the relationships, but just because I think it's so important. It might behoove you to find someone that has, you know, those relationships on a more national basis. But again, I don't think, I don't think it's necessary if someone has dealings, you know, in your industry and understands the, you know, and understands the, the politics and uh, of that particular industry. And I, I don't think it's, it's, it's a, it's a deal breaker to bring someone in to, um, to work on a national basis if their experience is maybe more localized or regionalized. Yeah. I mean, I, I've worked in both situations where our labor council, one, you know, one situation, we had like 44 locations from New York to Arizona, right. With, you know, all states all across the country. And we had one guy who, did everything he did the he did the labor side the the avoidance side the NLRB side you know basically he he and a couple other partners from his firm when we needed support and he was out of New York uh, in an, in another circumstance we tended to pick like a firm that was knowledgeable in that region or that city depend you know because we had maybe had hotspot local issues where we needed attention to say Tennessee or something like right. that I you mean you, it it gives you a couple of advantages you know the locals you know the board agents. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, the, you, you know, the ALJs and the board agents. And so you kind of know the, the, the people that you're dealing with in the government as well, right. which right. certainly doesn't hurt. So, right. Yep. Anyway. Okay. Well, I appreciate you taking that little tangent for me. I, I, I was, I, I meant, I meant to tee that up with you and I forgot about it and, and then I recalled it. So um, I think it was an interesting discussion. Maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be helpful for somebody if they, they listen. Um, I think the last thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap for the year was just the kind of the, the, the non NLRB stuff which there's still plenty of activity going on. And I know it seems like we always talk about Starbucks. We always talk about Amazon. Um, there, there's still stuff percolating. I mean, just this past weekend, you, you mentioned, you'll, I'll, I'll ask you to share your little anecdote in a second, but uh, Starbucks employees at uh, like 100, uh, 100 stores uh, across the country went out on strike for three days. And you said that you, you, uh, you had to like uh, suffer slight inconvenience as a result of the, of the strike, I guess. I was at, for, for anyone to look, to Northeast Ohio. I was at our fine Crocker Park in Westlake, Ohio, which is like an outdoor, I call it a lifestyle center, but it's like an outdoor shopping mall, you know, with like the apartments up top and whatever. So um, yeah, I was walking down the street with my wife and my son and towards the Starbucks and um, they were, they were closed for business. They were one of the 100, well, they are one of the Starbucks here in Northeast Ohio that has organized, um, but they are also one of the hundred nationwide that went out on this three-day strike. Uh, over Starbucks refusal to negotiate contracts, mm-hmm. um, according, at least according to the, according to the workers. Um, yeah. And so they're one of the hundred that went out on strike for three days and they were closed and I'm going to open up my phone while we're talking <laughs> so I can look at the picture I took. Um, I was frankly expecting, I wasn't sure if they were one of the ones I knew about the strike. I wasn't sure if they were one of the stores that was impacted or not. Um, but uh, so I was expecting as I, heard grumblings down the street that they Starbucks was closed. I was expecting to see pickets, um, which there wasn't, 
uh, which I think is a missed opportunity for the workers. And there was just a just a sign on the door that management put up that said our store is temporarily closed. Please accept our apologies for any inconvenience. We are working to reopen our store as quickly as possible. Um, right, management message, no mess, no 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 notation of the the walkout or the strike or or whatever. Um, a woman was as I was walking down the street. She was like, "Why is Starbucks? Why is, do you know why Starbucks is closed?" And like, the employees are on strike, and she kind of. She kind of groused and, you know, everybody. <laughs> I just want my coffee, damn it. <laughs> I know. Every, every, everybody's everybody's pro union until it impacts your ability to get your, you know, to get your latte at six right, o'clock on a right. Friday evening <laughs> while, you're, you know, while, while you're trying to finish up your Christmas shopping. Who wants to go into Target or, or a grocery a grocery uh, Starbucks to go inside and pick up your coffee. That's yeah, and then it's like damn, damn their fair wages. I want my, I want my mochaccino. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, there's there, we, there's been a couple more developments around Amazon. So, like even even during the holidays, when and we kind of have a saying around where I work that it's hard to hate during the holidays. You know, even though people don't really hate us, but you know, the the level of anxiety and angst always drops a bit around the holidays, except for the retail madness that we live with. But um, there's still activity out there and it you know it's uh it, it will n- n- no doubt continue percolating in, into january 2023 and i guess we'll be there to talk about it when we, we see be, what's next yes. right we, uh, t t b to be continued in 2023 yeah and i know we said it last time but um i i really had it really has been a joy doing these shows with you i think this is the seventh episode we did we do them about every couple of weeks it seems like and i've really enjoyed it i look forward to doing more and i want to wish you and all of our listeners uh merry christmas and happy new year happy holidays to encompass all the many um all the many faiths that celebrate at this time of year and uh i, I hope i hope your family as well as well john Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Same to you. Um, it's been, as I said last time, it's been a, one of my professional highlights in 2022 was getting to do this with you, and I'm looking forward to continuing it on in 2023 and beyond. I have one more burning question. Did we release the worst employer? I didn't see it. If you did. Um, Wednesday. It will Wednesday. come out. Wednesday. Wednesday. Wednesday, it will come out. You can find it at ohioemployerlawblog.com. It'll be on Twitter if Twitter still exists on Wednesday. It'll be on LinkedIn. And then Thursday um, is, uh, I think I've done it now. This will be the fourth year. Uh, the employment law night before Christmas is always my last post of the year. And this year, this year it does, it does. I rewrite some of it's the same year to year, but I always try to rewrite a couple verses to be more topical for what happened in the in our world in the year. And there is a definite, uh, a, a definite labor bent to this year's story. So, and if you have not read John's law blog, it's one of the best uh, labor law blogs in 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 the U.S. Uh, and he does a fantastic job and has for years. That is too kind. Thank you, you. No, it's well deserved. So check it out. Uh, the, the, these uh, these posts he just mentioned are actually some of the highlights of the highlights. So check those out. And everybody, like we said, have a great uh, happy uh, holiday period. And we will talk to you in 2023. Cheers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.